In the summer of 1816, Mary Shelley, her partner Percy, their son William, and her stepsister Claire all visited Lake Geneva to spend the summer at the villa of Lord Byron. In the evenings, they all sat on logs around a fire, and to pass the time, they discussed various topics and told ghost stories. During one evening in mid-June, Lord Byron suggested that each take a shot at writing their own ghost story. That suggestion led to the birth of one of the most famous monsters of all time, Frankenstein's monster. Today we're going to learn all about the novel Frankenstein and its author Mary Shelley. As a video game podcast does, we'll also take a look at some of the video games that have depicted the novel throughout history. So stick around and join us for our own little ghost story on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 152nd episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, just something relevant to this week. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we're going to talk about none of those because we're talking about a book, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And then we're going to look at how it's been depicted in video games throughout history. So I kind of cheated a little bit, you know. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is always building weird things in his laboratory. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what you got going on down in the lab this week? Well, Dave, you know, just some parts and some pieces putting together and seeing what we can make come alive yeah yeah i guess so i guess so it's it's, it's accurate indeed it is dave that's the way of science don't be weird about it though too late we're, we're way past weird this is weird science <laughs> that's a good movie actually that's yeah, a great duh. Movie. <laughs> come on oh <laughs> what you've been playing well as no surprise it has been a week of Rocket League, RuneScape, and some construction simulator. So, little little weird mix up there, but the normal got got always have the two every week. So, how about yourself, Dave? What's your week like been? Week been Rocket like? League. Played some Rocket League with you. I don't think we played separately. And then I played on Sunday morning. I had an hour or so, and I played Wandering Village. Oh, that's a Which, new one I haven't heard. Yeah, so it's uh, so you know me. I like to hop on Game Pass, and if there's a game that looks interesting on Game Pass that we haven't played that just came out, I'll try it out just for funsies. Wandering Village is a city-building simulator. The catch to it is it takes place on the back of a very large, like, turtle-type thing. Um, uh. And so you're building on the back of a moving, of a moving platform, and... You have to build like a symbiotic relationship with said uh, creature. And then like as you're moving along, you send out parties to collect goods and knowledge and stuff from various sites on the map. And you can, you know, there's crossroads where you can tell the creature to go left or right when you hit to a crossroad and stuff like that. So 
It's it's a city building game with a little bit of a twist, and I didn't hate it for an hour. I will probably go back and play it some more because that wasn't a whole lot of time to dive in. It's already got me hooked, so it's cool. It was cool. I mean, it's a it's you know we we both like those type of building games, and uh, that was a fun. It's a fun twist, to be honest with you. I I didn't get a lot of time to dive into like the tech tree and stuff like that, you know, beyond a few levels. So I'm interested in continuing to play it and see what's going on. Well, there we go, Dave. And on the topic of building things, Frankenstein. That was good. Very, very good. Frankenstein. So Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin was born on the 30th of August, 1797. She's the daughter of political philosopher William Godwin and philosopher and women's right advocate Mary Wollstonecraft. Unfortunately, Mary's mother died 11 days after giving birth to her, so she was raised by her father. Now a little bit about her father. Through his writing, William Godwin is considered the first modern proponent of anarchism. So a little trivia fact for you. Neat. And for those of you that really don't do years and you kind of know when this is, 1797, Godwin's most famous for a book he published in 19, sorry, 1793 called Political Justice. And it was written at the height of the French Revolution. So we are smack dab in the middle of the French Revolution right now. So viva la revolution. You know, guillotines off with your head. Let them eat their cake. All that fun stuff. The cake parties. The cake parties. 1797, that year, he married Mary's mother. She gave birth. She passed away. That's all 1797. They were only married for like five or six months, unfortunately. The French Revolution doesn't end till 1799. So like I said, we're in that time period. So a few years later, when Mary was four, her father then married a neighbor, Mary Jane Claremont. This probably isn't relevant, but I found this hilarious. A journalist once wrote of Claremont, she was a vulgar and worldly woman, thoroughly feminine and rather inclined to boast of her total ignorance of philosophy. So it's a good quote to have. She was not Mary Wollstonecraft early women's right advocate in any stretch of the imagination. Mary herself did not have a great relationship with her stepmother. She later wrote as to Mrs. Godwin, something very analogous to disgust arises whenever I mention her and referred to her as a woman. I shudder to think of nice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good memories of her. Yeah. In 1814, Mary Godwin began a romantic relationship with one of her father's political followers, Percy Shelley. Now, if you don't know Percy, he's one of England's major romantic poets, but he's also a weird dude. I I like the history of these two. I'm telling you it because I think it's relevant to Frankenstein. And if you've never learned about it, you should learn about it. Also, for those of you that don't know, because we always dive into the history, I actually double majored history and English lit. We're like right in my wheelhouse right now. As a child, Percy was bullied and unhappy at school, and that caused him to lash out in violent rages. This led to him periodically suffering from nightmares, hallucinations, and sleepwalking. As a child, he's said to have frightened people with experiments with gunpowder, acids, and electricity. Mm. When he was 12, he started attending Eton College. It's a boarding school in England, and the bowling intensified here. It became mob bullying, and the bullies called them Shelly Bates. Oh, now Percy was a bit weird kid Uh, because of this and his violent tendencies. They nicknamed him Mad Shelley. Now, Mad Shelley had an interest in all things occult and all things science. 
He has things written about him where he is described as having done things such as given electric shock to a master at the boarding school, blowing up a tree stump with gunpowder and attempting to raise spirits with occult rituals. Neat. Right. But he gets past the spades. Boarding school is done. He goes away to college, Oxford, no less. And he meets a fellow student, Thomas Jefferson Hogg. What a name. And together they become very political. They develop radical and anti-Christian views. This is mostly thanks to the writing of Mary's father, William Godwin. In particular, Percy was influenced by his most famous work, Political Justice. So Percy was a fan of Mary's father, William Godwin. Now, his radicalism led him to mail a pamphlet to all the bishops and head of colleges at Oxford. The pamphlet was named The Necessity of Atheism. When he was called to appear before the deans and all the fellows of the college, he refused to answer questions and they expelled him. That's metal. I know, right? So he ambles on for a while. He ends up marrying a girl named Harriet Westbrook in 1810, which his parents were not thrilled he did because she was nothing special. So he was cut off from the family's money. So he goes off with Thomas Jefferson Hogg, the hog. We'll call him the hog for now on. So he goes off with the hog. They get a house together. Leads to this weird deal where the hog tries to seduce Harriet when Percy was away. For all accounts, what we know of Percy's marriage to Harriet doesn't seem to be very great. And then in 1814, he's meeting William Godwin and learning things. And through that, he meets Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin and he falls in love with her. Now, the feeling was mutual. Percy and Mary are described as declaring their love for one another during a visit to her mother's grave. Apparently, they were meeting in secret at her mother's grave. The tradition states that she lost her virginity to him there, too. Freaky oh. deaky. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and when Percy admitted to her father that he intended on leaving his wife to live with Mary instead, he was banished from the home and forbade from seeing Mary. So what do they do? They go to Europe and elope. Damn. So they elope to Europe. Mary's stepsister, Claire, there's a Claire Claremont. She comes with. They're all scraping by with very little money. Somewhere in this mix, Percy's first wife, Harriet, gets pregnant and she gives birth to a boy. Mary had also gotten pregnant in, in, the, in this mess and her pregnancy was not an easy one. It was said that she was ill and she didn't cope well with Percy's joy at the birth of his son. Uh, so she was depressed and dealing with stuff like that. And as far as we know, and we pretty much do know, Percy and, and Claire, Mary's stepsister Claire, they were pretty much lovers. We know that they were lovers, which caused much jealousy for Mary. Now, she did manage to develop a relationship with the hog. They all believed in the concept of free marriage. That's probably a lot thanks to Mary's mother and women's rights. And there was this idea of free love there. What we do know is that Percy actually pushed Mary and the hog to become lovers. Wow. And while Mary never dismissed the idea because of that whole free love concept, there's no proof that they ever progressed past flirting. In February of 1815, she gives birth to a premature baby girl, and unfortunately, it dies 10 days later. This pushes her in deep, deep depression. She is said to be haunted by visions of her baby. But by the next summer, she had rebounded. She was pregnant again. Things seemed to be going well. So in January of 1816, she finally gives birth to a boy, William. In that time period, Percy's grandfather had died. So they were cut off from the family's money when they ran away to Europe. But when Percy's grandfather died, they inherited some money. 
So they finally are comfortable and they have a son and things seem to be going well for Mary Godwin and Percy Shelley. In May of 1816, Mary, Percy, and their son, William, traveled to Geneva along with Mary's stepsister, Claire. Claire was pregnant at the time. The child was the result of an affair she was having with the poet, Lord Byron. Now, they had planned to spend the summer there on Lake Geneva. At night, they sat around a log fire at Byron's villa, and they amused themselves with German ghost stories. At one point, Lord Byron suggested that they each write a ghost story. Now, at first, Mary was unable to think of any story. You know, we have journals from Mary uh, and Percy in this time period, so we know a lot of how everything went down. It's great. She had a lot of anxiety. There were days in which she couldn't come up with a story and the pressure was building. And then one day in mid-June, the discussions around the fire turned to the principle of life. In her journal, she writes... Perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Galvanism has given token of such things. Now, this discussion kept Mary up long after the others had retired for the night, and she wrote that she felt possessed by her imagination as she beheld the grim terrors of her waking dream. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together, she wrote. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then... On the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life, and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. Frightful must it be, for supremely frightful would be the effect of any human endeavor to mock the stupendous mechanism of the creator of the world. Now Mary began writing what she thought was only going to be a short story. It was a ghost tale about her grim terrors and, and this, this hideous phantasm. And that was it. She worked on it. They returned to England in September. In October, they received an alarming letter from a half-sister of hers named Fanny Imlay, and they raced off to find her. Unfortunately, on October 10th, Fanny was found dead next to a suicide note and a bottle of laudanum, which is kind of a really crude version of morphine. It's like 1% morphine, really crude back in the day. Sold in a bottle, narcotics. They sold everything back then, you know. On December 10th, Percy Shelley's wife, Harriet, was discovered drowned in London, and that was also assumed to be a suicide. Wow. I know, right? So at this point, Percy has two children with Harriet, and he tries to assume custody of the two children. He was in for a fight. Harriet's family did not want to give up custody to Percy. And so Percy was advised by his lawyers to improve his case by marrying, and he did. So he and Mary were married on the 30th of December, 1816 in London. So now she's Mary Shelley. And somewhere during all of this mess, she's continuing to work on her ghost tale. Percy is encouraging, editing, helping her. There's some debate over the editing, encouraging and helping. Like there's a whole literary philosophy over who wrote it, him or her. But for all purposes, we're going to go with her because she deserves way more credit, I think, than she gets. But yeah, so she writes her ghost tale. She expands it into an entire novel and she calls it Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. Now it was published anonymously in January of 1818. The preface was written by Percy himself and it was dedicated to William Godwin, which was Percy's mentor. So many people initially thought he wrote it anyways, but eventually Mary kept writing the library of her writing grew and she was eventually recognized for that novel as well as the others. So 
I think it's important here to note real quick before I go on to the novel itself. In her own lifetime, Mary Shelley was seen as a serious writer over multiple pieces of literature. She she wasn't one of those writers that was like ignored when she was alive. And then after she died, people were like, oh, my God, this is the best thing ever. You know, she was the she was the daughter of William Godwin. She was the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft. People knew who Mary Mary Godwin slash Shelley was, and they took her seriously. She was a serious writer during that period of time. But for whatever reason, over the course of the 19th century, she became seen as a one novel author at best and solely as the wife of Percy Shelley. Right. I mean, that's how most people know her. Do you know of any other other of her books other than Frankenstein? Negatory. Has any you I mean, I know that English wasn't your thing, but you've at least had to take basic English. Have you ever, ever had to study Mary Shelley or anything other than Frankenstein? I cannot tell you that I have, but yeah, 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 no, no, I know you took one English class. I took like 30,000, right? Yeah, pretty much. So it's really only recently, like in the last 30 years or so, that scholars have really started to dive in and appreciate the entirety of her work. But there is there is more work. She wrote other novels. She she wrote other things. So she was a, she was a serious writer. But we're not here for the library of Mary Shelley. I think her history is very interesting with her little hallucinations and lover trysts and dead suicides and pretty wild couple. That's putting it lightly, Dave. (laughs) No, we're here for Frankenstein. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus. That's its official title. Frankenstein tells the story of Victor Frankenstein. He's a young scientist who creates an intelligent and aware creature through an unorthodox experiment. Now, if you've never read it or really anything from this time period, you'll be surprised to find that it's written in what we call an epistolary form. And this means that it is a story written as a series of letters between the fictional characters of a narrative. Probably the most successful and well-known of all the epistolary novels, aside from Frankenstein, is Dracula. And personally, those are two really great Gothic novels. I've always, always loved Gothic novels. I studied a lot of Gothic literature when I was in college. It fit really nicely with my emo phase my brooding emo phase my chemical romance and dracula yeah that's that's definitely a freaking combo right there rob it, yeah definitely but i've really always loved the fact that two of the most famous monsters in the world and they're famous we know them they're in movies everyone knows who dracula and frankenstein are their movie versions don't even represent their literary versions neither of them actually And they're both derived from novels that are written as a series of letters. That's not how you traditionally read a book either. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely not. Have you ever had to read a book before that was epistolary form? Mm, Does not. I don't believe I have. I I never had to read Frankenstein or Dracula, and I can't think of anything that I've read that is like that. God, I have to read Dracula in so many classes. I I probably read it four or five times between different courses. Well, you chose English, Dave. So in the case of Frankenstein, the letters are sent between Captain Robert Walton. He's a failed writer who sets out to explore the North Pole to expand his scientific knowledge. And Walton's sister, Margaret Walton Seville. 
Now, during the voyage, the crew spots a dog sled driven by a gigantic figure. They're out in the Arctic Circle North Pole. And a few hours later, the crew, the crew, the crew comes up upon a nearly frozen man. They rescue him. His it's Victor Frankenstein. Victor tells them that he's been in the pursuit of the gigantic man that they saw on the dog sled. As he begins to recover from his ordeal, he sees in Captain Walton the same obsession that has destroyed his own life. And he recounts to the captain his life's miseries as a warning to him. And this starts Frankenstein's narrative. In it, he tries to create this beautiful creature. In his mind, he's creating the ultimate, ultimate creature. He's putting it together, as we know, from, you know, dead body parts and stuff. In his mind, he's creating life matter from non-matter, per se. But what he manages to create instead is a huge, hideous creature that actually repulses him. So he runs away from it (laughs) and he ignores it and it disappears. And then the people in Victor's life starts dying and he's convinced that the creature is behind it all, which he is. At one point, the creature confronts Victor and tells him a sob story about how he tries to interact with people, but people are afraid of him because he's hideous. And so he's lonely and he convinces Victor to create for him a female companion because I mean, who doesn't want companionship in this world? True. So Victor starts work on another creature. And as he's progressing through it, his gut is telling him, no, 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 don't do it. This is a disaster. So he stops and the creature gets angry and he vows to murder more people close to Victor. And he does. He murders what his best friend, what's left of his family. Victor falls for a woman, Elizabeth. And just before they're due to get married, he finds the creature strangling her. I mean, the creature literally murders, like burns Victor's life down. It's fantastic. Wow. And then they start this cat and mouse chase that ends with them both in the Arctic Circle. And I won't give away the end, but, you know, there's a culmination and they have a confrontation and there's a there's a there's a end to the story. It's, It's great. You should really read it because it's not the Frankenstein you think it is. I mean, it is and it's not. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's way different than what I thought. So it's it's a great story. Really fantastic story. Great story. Rob, do you know what else is great? Well, there's really a lot of things, Dave. So why don't you tell me what you think is great? Zencaster. Zencaster is great, Rob. Are you looking for the right tools to start your own podcast listener? Are you a podcaster tired of dealing with unreliable recording tools that leave you frustrated and stressed? Well, listen up, because we've got a game changer for you. That's right, Dave. Zencaster is the dream solution for podcasters who want high-quality audio without the hassle. Whether you're recording solo or with remote guests, Zencaster ensures a seamless recording experience. With Zencaster, you can say goodbye to those dreaded dropped calls and glitchy audio. The platform records each participant locally on their device, so you'll get crystal clear sound no matter where your guests are located. And you don't need to be a tech genius to use Zencaster. It's incredibly user-friendly with intuitive controls that make recording and editing a breeze. I mean, come on, even Dave can use it. Very true. And here's the best part. Zencaster also saves your recordings in the cloud, so you'll never have to worry about losing your precious content. Plus... Zencaster offers studio-grade post-production tools, so you can edit your podcast right within the platform. It's like having a professional sound engineer 
right at your fingertips. Yeah, I really love using Zencaster because it really streamlines my workflow and it always guarantees us like top notch audio quality. It's true. And our listeners have noticed, too. We've received so many compliments on the clarity of our episodes since we switched to Zencaster. Yeah, it's been a really noticeable difference. So if you're serious about taking your podcast to the next level, it's time to give Zencaster a try. And for all of our listeners, if you head on over to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing and use the offer code MemoryCardLane, all one word, you can get up to 30% off your first month of any Zencaster podcasting plan. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com forward slash pricing and use our offer code memory card lane. You know what? You love it. It's our website too, all one word, and you'll get 30% off your first month and you'll be telling your own great stories in no time. And speaking of great stories, Dave. Frankenstein. You Frankenstein, know. a great story that I'm learning so much about because... <laughs> I only knew the stuff from the movies, which is vastly different. It's very different. It's so, and Dracula too. I have to do a Dracula episode because I studied a lot of Dracula and I've had to write some really interesting story, uh, like analytical uh, papers on it. My favorite ones, actually. Of course they are, Dave. Yeah, when we get to it and I tell, you'll know why. You'll know absolutely why. As Rob just said, Frankenstein has graced the silver screen many, many times. The first time was a silent film way back in 1910. Its most famous movies are probably the Boris Karloff Universal Pictures films from the 1930s. I think they were, what, 33, 35? There were three of them, and I think they were all in the 30s. Dave, don't act like you weren't growing up watching those. That's right. It has been on television There are radio productions about Frankenstein. There are stage productions of Frankenstein. There are so many books written about Frankenstein or around Frankenstein or retellings of Frankenstein. Plenty of comic books about Frankenstein. And, of course, since we are a video game history podcast, it has also appeared in various video games throughout history. So let's take some time and talk about all of those. So before we dive into the games featuring Frankenstein, let's look at some of the homages to it found in other games. Homage. Fromage. The cheese homage. Yes. So perhaps the most popular game to have referenced Frankenstein is Castlevania. Throughout the entire Castlevania series, Frankenstein's monster appears multiple times. Uh, I'm going to stop on a moment there. You'll, You'll hear like lit people hate frankenstein like the people who are like grammar nazis because like what you know as frankenstein is actually frankenstein's monster uh yeah i know i'm yeah. aware frankenstein yeah, yeah, is yeah. the name of the scientist yes frankenstein's name of the scientist anyways so throughout the entire series frankenstein's monster appears multiple times he's named either the monster or the creature he's a major boss in multiple games sometimes he's just a regular enemy though he appeared in the reboot, the Lords of the Shadow, like edgy reboot of the series, the, the, the recent ones. He's very different. He is called the mechanical monstrosity. He's more of a mechanical boss than an actual like flesh one like like we know it to be. But we know it's a reference because it's listed in the game as having been created by Frederick von Frankenstein. 
one of the other well-known series that contains a reference to Frankenstein is one that we just covered a few episodes ago, and that would be the Persona series. Mm. Throughout the Persona series, you frequently visit a supernatural room called the Velvet Room. It's like you're, you know, you go to sleep and it's it's like a, a room that's a realm between like the other realm and this one in between. Because the way Persona goes is you, you bounce between like the demon realm and the normal realm. And the super the uh, the velvet room kind of sits in between. That's totally simplifying it. But all of the characters in the velvet room, Igor, Elizabeth, Margaret, Theodore, Lavenza, Caroline and Justine, they're all characters from the Frankenstein series. Every one of them. In the 1995 Super NES game, Donkey Kong Country 3, Dixie Kong's Double Trouble, Kong's archenemy, King R. Rule, assumes the persona of Baron K. Rulenstein. I'm sorry, who? Baron K. Rulenstein. No, you said King R. Ruler. King R. Rule. That's King K. Rule. King K. Oh, <laughs> King K. Rule. You got me. Man, I was doing so good on this episode until then. There's always one, though. There's always one. But hey, Rule, it's literally cruel, Dave. Come on. It's King Cruel. It's King Cruel. You're right. No, it's Baron Cruelenstein. Baron K. Rulenstein. <laughs> There's a Frankenstein-like monster called Victor von Gerdenheim in the fighting game series Darkstalkers. Darkstalkers has a bunch of monsters from popular culture. Frankenstein's monster also appears in the video game adaption of the film Van Helsing. He's only a, he's an NPC. He's a non-playable character. The 2008 video game Fable 2. We've done a whole episode on fa- on the original Fable. You know, we all know it's one of my favorite series. It contains a quest in which a man named Victor is attempting to reanimate the body of a deceased woman, which they're both homages to the book. Upon completion of the quest, if the player buys the house and unlocks an area known as the Shelley tomb, obviously a reference to Mary Shelley. You mean the wife of Percy Shelley? Yes. <laughs> no, the author of Frankenstein. I gotta fight the I gotta fight the good fight. In the 2009 Wii game Mad World, Frankenstein's monster appears as a boss battle at the base of a dungeon and is simply called Frank with bolts in his back rather than in his neck as, you know, he's commonly seen in the movies. He's also shown as being regenerative when connected to an electric chair and his size well exceeds the seven feet go-to size that he's typically depicted on. In fact, in this game, he can go as much as 20 feet high, which is huge. God damn. Right? There's a, a horror fighting game called Terror Drome 2 Reign of the Legends and Frankenstein's monster is in there. That version of the monster considers himself the legitimate son of Victor Frankenstein, explaining why the game calls him Frankenstein instead of Frankenstein's monster. So, you know, they gave it actually a backstory for why people suck. Okay. I mean, hey, maybe that's the the truth behind it all. And we're all in some way correct. Maybe. And I know I'm missing other references. I think that Five Nights at Freddy's has the VR version has a DLC where one of the animatronics turns into a Frankenstein, like a Frankenstein monster. So I know, I know there's a a Frankenstein reference somewhere in there. I didn't dig deep for, I mean, basically Frankenstein's very popular in pop culture and he pops up in games all the time. And that means that there are also games that are based on this piece of literature themselves. Uh, One of the earliest ones I could find was back in 1981 
it was a single player word construction game that was simply called Frankenstein for the TRS-80. Hey, the Radio Shack. The Radio Shack. Hey, there you go. There I'm you learning, go, Dave. It only took <laughs> me like 152 episodes. <laughs> I'm impressed. The Radio Shack 80. Good job. So there's three separate word games. The first one is Frankenstein. The player tries to guess a word by guessing letters. If you get six incorrect guesses, Frankenstein's monster comes to life. There's also guess a word where you try to guess a five letter word. Nothing special there. And there's a, a scramble game called Jumbles. There was another TRS-80 game called Frankenstein Adventure in 1981. This was a text-based adventure. It's described as the last living descendant of the storied Frankenstein family. The player has been summoned to the old family estate. In the creepy manner, the player is charged through messages and envelopes by no less than the great Dr. Victor Frankenstein with a crucial task. Reanimating the monster in the basement lab who plunged the family name into infamy. This will involve gathering critical components from around the lots, from electrodes to some fresh human organs. You can oh. crack, a, crack a safe, navigate a secret passage, thwart the trepidations of a local wolfman, and then, just as electricity arcs across the large disused capacitors and the creature stirs once more, watch things go awry just as the greatest moment of Promethean triumph occurs. Frankenstein's Adventure 1981 in 1983, Frankenstein's monster made his way to the Atari 2600 in Frankenstein's monster. In this game, the player character has to make his way through the ghoulish castle of Dr. Frankenstein, where he must prevent him from completing his creation. The player must gather stones from the dungeon and bring them to the tower where he must build a barricade around Frankenstein's monster before he has accumulated enough energy to come alive, which he does using a so-called power probe which is a device absorbing energy from electrical storm. It's like a brick like building game. You got to build walls around Frankenstein, basically just another brick in the wall, Dave, just another brick in the wall. We have an episode named that, don't we? Uh, I believe we did. Yes. Yeah, I believe we do. I think it's on arachnoid, the brick breaking game. I think so. Wow. We'll talk about where people can find it later. In 1987, Rod Pike, created a text-based adventure it was simply called frankenstein the story in the game starts with the player taking the role of dr frankenstein having pursued your research for many years you have acquired the necessary body parts and assembled them to create the perfect being however what rises from the slab is horrible and you run from the laboratory in fear and disgust on your return you find that the creature has left, so you breathe a sigh of relief and move on to other things. Four years pass, and word reaches you that your sister has been slain, strangled by a hideous monster. Your task is clear. You must track down this monster, for you have no doubt where it came from, and you must destroy it. Oh, come on. It could totally be a different monster. So that quest takes up parts one and part two of the game, and then there's a third part in which you take the role of the monster starting knowing nothing but pain or with no idea of who or where you are, you must explore the surroundings, learn and develop the monster's IQ. As part of this game progresses, the player lear will learn what makes the creature a killer. Okay. That's a pretty dope concept. Yeah, I agree. Actually 
1990, there was a Commodore 64 title developed by Viz Design and published by Cartoon Time, and it was called Frankenstein Jr. If you're trying to look this one up, Jr. is abbreviated JNR instead of just JR like we're used to. I don't know why. This is a flick screen maze game. You use the joystick to move Frankie Jr. The button on the joystick lets him pick objects up. As it's described, players take control of the son of Frankenstein's monster and are tasked with the objective to rebuild his dad. Frankie Jr. needs to search the castle for his father's body parts so they can be rejoined back together. This will allow Frankie Jr. to reanimate his father's body by jolting it back to life with 10,000 volts of electricity. Frankie Jr. can also collect keys to open certain doors. Ghosts and skeletons will try to stop him by draining his energy, which will eventually lead to cardiac arrest if his energy gets too low. Hmm. Hmm. In 1991, there was a game published for the Atari ST by Budgie UK called Castle Frankenstein. Castle Frankenstein is a platform game in which you play a scientist whose goal is to create a monster out of a pile of bones that has gone missing. The bones are scattered throughout the first 19 levels of the game, and all the player has to do is take them to level 20, where the monster will be created. Each level is one screen wide, several screens high. Once you've collected all the items in a level, you head to the exit door at the bottom of the level, because every level has a time limit, and so you have to move quickly. So there you go. Collect bones, take them back to the bottom of the screen, move on to the next level, get through 19 levels, and on level 20... All the bones come together to create Frankenstein. Pretty sweet. Also in 1991, we got Frankenstein, The Monster Returns for the Nintendo Entertainment System. It was developed by Toze and published by Bandai. It came out in July of 1991. And this specific game is the reason why I picked Frankenstein as this week's topic. July of 1991. Eat it, suckers. It's set sometime after the Frankenstein story. In this one, the monster returns from the dead, leading a supernatural army by way of magic. He raises several villages and kidnaps a beautiful maiden named Emily with the intent on making her his bride. The monster even manages to use his magic to subdue several mythical creatures such as Death and Medusa as well. You play as a young swordsman of the village determined to stop the supernatural army, rescue Emily, and slay the monster once and for all. Sounds pretty cool, actually. It does sound like a pretty awesome game. This is a side-scrolling platform game. It's got beat-em-up elements. It's comparison. It resembles Castlevania. That kind of sounds like a badass game, actually. I don't remember it, personally. In 1992, Enigma Variations made a game called Frankenstein for the Amiga, and it was published by Zeppelin Games Limited. In it, Baron Frankenstein has instructed his hunchback servant, Igor, to collect tools and bodies for him to use in his quest to create artificial life. As Igor, the player must search through Frankenstein's castle, the dungeons, surrounding forests, the local village, and other areas in a side-scrolling platformer. Despite the grim themes, this game is actually a humorous, cartoonish one. Each task begins in Frankenstein's lab, with the Baron telling Igor what items he requires. Igor must find it, put it in a sack, and return to the lab to receive the next tasks. The enemies are like ghosts, skeletons, rats, bats, animated body parts, local townsfolk, you know, things like that. Igor doesn't have a health bar. He's got a fright-o-meter that ranges from calm to panic. That's kind of fun. Once it's reached panic, he'll drop what he's carrying and flee to the lab, which causes him to lose a life. You can reduce the meter, though. You can meet up with the local serving wench, and she'll calm Igor's nerves and return it to zero. I'm sure she will. (laughs) 
Once Igor has returned the weather chart requested by Frankenstein, the game introduces a time limit. The timer starts at 74 minutes and counts down to an electrical storm that will bring the monster to life. So you then have to collect all the body parts within the electrical storm and reanimate Frankenstein. That one sounds kind of cool, actually. It does. In 1994, they made a Super Nintendo game based on the film Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In it, you control Frankenstein's monster as he stops through the streets of Ingolstadt, Bavaria in the year 1793, seeking revenge against a certain man named Victor for rejecting him once he was created. Since he is the product of artificial manufacturing, he is condemned and declared a monster by peasants and shoulders. Soldiers? Shoulders. Just sol- just peasants and shoulders. Not anything else of anyone else. Only their shoulders hate Frankenstein's monster. Yeah. It's because they're not as broad. Oh my god. So yeah. So you're Frankenstein's monster and all the common folk are striving to kill you because, you know, they don't understand science and they think he's a demon. Man, that's still a theme. What the hell? Yep. 1793, we were arguing about the concept of science being demonic and we're still doing it in 2023. Well, hey, science has a long history and it's only going to keep growing. So does religion. That's not Uh, true. uh, Actually, religion is shrinking. I mean... Our, no, it, no, it legitimately is. Our generations are the least religious of all the generations. We are all dropping religion like flies. Damn, didn't know that. I think the your generation is like the least religious by the percentages in a long, long time. Like every, one, every subsequent generation has been less and less religious. That's why they're freaking out. They know. They know. Like the religious, the right, like they, like, they know. They're, they're, they're like... It's the death gasps of a dying, a dying way of life. You know, they're they're all like no one's religious anymore. And that's why life sucks. No, life sucks because you suck. Go, go F yourself. Tell us how you really feel, Dave. People just need to stay out of my business. Let me live my life and you'll live theirs. That's my overriding philosophy. It doesn't need to be harder than that. You have no business. You have no business telling anyone else how to live their life. Don't be a dick don't be a dick live by the golden rule you treat others the way you want to be treated would you like someone coming up to you and telling you that you don't deserve to exist no so don't do it to another person you fucking nitwit just don't be a dick easy as pie don't be a dick i'm sure that's on a t-shirt somewhere i guarantee it dave in 1995 interplay published a pc game called frankenstein through the eyes of a monster This is a point-and-click adventure game starring Tim Curry as as Frankenstein. Okay. He, as the the player, as Victor Frankenstein, Tim Curry is Dr. Frankenstein. And as the player, you are creating, you're controlling a newly created Frankenstein monster. This game uses full motion video clips and 3D graphics. That's what was popular in 1995. It's basically like Mist. It gets compared to Mist. It's like Mist, but it uses Frankenstein's story as a narrative, which is kind of cool. So, and, and I mean Tim Curry, and Tim Curry can't go wrong with Tim Curry in any way, shape, or form. Agreed. And there have been others. There are other games. Way too many to go into. We could we could be here absolutely all night talking about about games for Frankenstein. But as you can tell, these all have the same theme. You know, they're all 
they're all somewhere in the ballpark of, of Frankenstein. They made Frankenstein for Windows in 2007. Frankenstein the Dismembered Bride for Windows in 2009. We know that's probably about the second creature. Frankenstein was made for mobile phones in 2012. Frankenstein the Village in 2015. Frankenstein Beyond the Time in 2018. I mean, every year there's some video game made about Frankenstein. Most recently in 2019, LaBelle Games produced a game for Switch, the Nintendo Switch PC and mobile phones called The Wanderer, Frankenstein's Creature. This is a point-and-click narrative adventure game that is said to more closely resemble Mary Shelley's novel as opposed to the pop culture ideas of what Frankenstein is. So, as you can see, Frankenstein and his monster are still running through pop culture's imagination day in and day out. There have been plenty of games, board games, video games, books, movies, etc., etc., made about Frankenstein. All about a book. All about a book. It's pretty cool if you ask me. The fact that a book written in 18, what I say, 1818, is still stoking the imagination of people in 2023 it's definitely an incredible feat that is how you know that you made something special and although she knew you know she did get respect as a writer when she was alive i don't think she could have even fathomed what frankenstein would become as it was assimilated into pop culture and now we're here talking about it on devices in the palm of your hand that have the world's entirety of the world's knowledge at your fingertips. She could have never, ever, ever envisioned that, you know? I don't think anyone could have, Dave. True. I don't know. There's a lot of argument that Frankenstein might actually be one of the, if not the first science fiction novel, that there's a there's a school of thought where that's an argument. For most of us, it's a romantic and gothic novel. But there, there's an argument to it being science fiction. I mean, the creature was created through science. So the, the argument is pretty valid that it's definitely sci-fi. Yeah, but if you read the book, the emphasis is not on the emphasis is not on the process or the experiment. The emphasis is on, hey, I created a hideous creature. I'm horrified by it. I'm now running away and the creature is is ruining my life. Science fiction tends to be about like the technology or futurism or like how society progresses in the future, like things like that. And the emphasis in this novel is more so on how the creature is perceived by people and how he reacts to it and how Victor perceives his creation and how he reacts to it. That's why I think it's more of a creature like gothic novel than a science fiction novel i'm of the other school of thought to be honest with you hey man it involves science and it's not true which makes it fiction oh my God. meets all the criteria okay all right fine whatever other school of thought so yeah that's frankenstein now we covered a lot of stuff in there and i talked about a few other novels and and stuff um what did we talk about brick breaking fable uh what else what else what else castlevania we haven't done a castlevania episode yet have we pretty sure we did did we do a castlevania episode i'm not sure if we did Maybe we just talked about well oh you know what maybe i'm just thinking because we've talked metrovania games 
Yeah, we have. I don't think we've actually done a Castlevania episode. All that aside, Dave, there is a place that people can go and check it out. There is. You know, if you want to check out what what topics we've done, what topics we're going to do, uh, and stuff like that, there is definitely some place you can go to check that out. And that, that, my friends, would be our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, share with these people what else they can learn about. Well, also at our website, you can see show notes from all of our previous and current episodes. You know, just uh, learn some of the things that Dave and I have. Maybe you want to do a little bit of extra research. You can put little uh, notes in there for future episodes and tell us some of your own little tidbits of information that you may know or want to share with the world. And, you know, maybe just tell us, hey, like this game was really fucking awesome. That's dope. Uh, You can find links to things such as our Patreon as well as our social medias. I can be found on various platform as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and David. I can be found on various social media platforms as David is wrong. And just a follow up to that, Rob, I went back and looked. We have never done the original Castlevania, but on my birthday, for episode 78, we did my favorite Castlevania, Symphony of the Night, 1997 PlayStation game, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, one of my favorite. And that's when we talked about Metroidvania games, because it's, in my opinion, one of the best Metroidvanias ever created. So you have a good memory. Indeed, I do. You have a great memory. I wouldn't go that far. Yeah, okay. I was trying to give <laughs> a little bit of credit. <laughs> trying to give you a little bit of credit. So yeah, go check out our website, www.memorycardlane.com. Also, we've been putting unedited and ad-free versions of our episodes on our Patreon. So for $1 or $2 a month, if you want to support this podcast, you can have access to those. Typically, they'll be up on Wednesdays, the night before I post You know, these these, uh, episodes go live on Thursdays uh, to the public. So you'll get it. You'll get it like you know, 12 hours earlier or so, and you'll get it unedited or ad-free if you want to hear the stupid sidebar crap that Rob and I talk about or me stumbling on my words that I like to edit out so you guys think I'm way smarter than I actually am. Newsflash, he's not. He's not? (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. He's not. So check those out. Support us on Patreon. All right. Each week, we tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week, We told you the story about Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, the novel by Mary Shelley, and the subsequent video games that have been created in its image. We tell you these topics each week to teach you something new about the topic, to teach you something about what they take from the world for inspiration or what they give back to the world in their legacy. And in doing so, we learn That's like the best part. When we sit down and do these topics, we have to do research. Every single time we do research, we end up learning something. That's honestly the best part about teaching is as you teach, you learn. It's a beautiful cycle. And in recognition for it, we like to do a roundtable at the end of every episode where we talk about what we take away from every episode. So, Rob, what did you learn today? Well, not really so much on the video game front. Uh, I think the biggest takeaway that I have is that uh, having never actually read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Modern Prometheus, I didn't realize that it was an epistolary novel. And honestly, although that doesn't sound 
driving to read something of that style to me. It's not really interesting to me as much. It's a cool concept. Hearing the story as not being what I knew as Frankenstein, I do kind of want to know and understand what the hell happens at the Arctic Circle. So, you know, like I said, it's it's the it's the captain writing letters back and forth with his sister. And, you know, he tells Frankenstein's story. And then at one, you know, Frankenstein's recounting his story. And then at one point, you know, the creature catches up with him and tells his side of the story, which is what leads to the bride of Frankenstein, basically. And when that goes uh, when that goes awry, then they're back to recounting the story of how the monster is, you know, just absolutely burning his life down. I mean, it just goes up in flames. It's it's fantastic. Every I mean, like everywhere he turns, someone in his life is strangled. So and then they start chasing each other into the Arctic Arctic Circle um, and until you get to the end. So it's just like back and forth where you get Victor's perspective and the monster's perspective and then Victor's perspective. And then it kind of all culminates at the end. I will tell you, it's a weird perspective. I understand that it it's not what you expect. You know, a series of letters written back and forth is sounds boring. Yeah, I mean, on one hand, it is. It's just a different narrative structure to tell a story. That's all. But one that was more common back then than now, to be fair. You know, and a lot of people don't know that two of the most famous monster novels of all time were both written that way. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. So uh, I think it's one that I'm going to have to add to my list of ever-growing books to read, much like games. But that's it for me, Dave. So what was your big takeaway, having known all of this about Frankenstein and Mary Shelley? I'm curious to know what possibly could you have learned? No, I learned things. It's not like I've ever really had that much. I mean, there's stuff that you learn in school. Like I knew about all her their weird lover's choice things and stuff like that, but there's little details about her life that I learned stuff that we didn't really talk about here. Cause it wasn't relevant, you know, them being destitute without money at times and, you know, scraping by and shacking up with this person and stuff like that. I didn't really know about the suicides. That was a weird, a weird situation, you know, that led to them being able to get married. And if I did know it, I forgot about it. So there's always stuff I learn. It's, you know, we do this every week. It's hard to remember everything, you know, but I do remember I really enjoy I mean, I really enjoy Frankenstein and, and the and the Percy Shelley, uh, Mary Shelley combo. They're just such a weird, weird ass couple. And it's always cool because like the story goes that Frankenstein was created when they were telling ghost stories around a fire, which is absolutely the truth. I mean, that's such a cool concept that that's where this started, you know? Yeah, um, that's pretty crazy. So, yeah. There's always stuff to learn. Always stuff to learn. I do not remember everything. There's always stuff to learn. And this just happens to be some of my favorite stuff. All right, Rob. Well, that'll do it for Frankenstein. I think it's a good time to call it. We'll take it out of there. Uh, on that note, before I look forward to next week, is there anything that you would like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to say thank you so much to all of you who listen. It means the world to us. We love hearing things from you guys, whether, you know, it could be criticisms. It could just be, hey, that was a great episode. I learned a lot telling us things that you remember from certain portions of our episodes. It's just great to know that we get to connect through things that we're all passionate about and to learn. And we're just thankful you guys enjoy enough to listen to us. So thank you. Awesome. All right, next week we're going to look at an accessory that was created for the Atari 26 video game console. 
And you may be asking yourself, well, Dave, how can you take a do an entire episode on a single accessory? Well, I'm going to tell you. So the Starpath Supercharger, pretty cool name, is designed to allow you to play cassette-based proprietary games on the Atari 2600. So next week, we're going to take a look at the Starpath Supercharger, and we're going to look at its entire library of games. So a whole lot to talk about. So join us again next week as we blaze a path through the stars on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do-boo-doo-pop. Ba-ba-doo-boo-doo. Doo, doo.